You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care, in a case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what Yahweh your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before Yahweh your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to Yahweh and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 671 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we've got laws concerning divorce. We've got miscellaneous laws. We've got lots to say about economics and marriage and labor and the relationship between a husband and a wife, between a native and a sojourner, between an employer and an employee, and a few other things just scattered in here and there. Very interesting. Sometimes to me, what is put next to what in the biblical text? Very interesting to me. It's interesting, for instance, that we have laws concerning divorce, and then what immediately follows is when a man is newly married. (laughs) When a man is newly married, he should not be sent out with the army or liable for any other public duty. Leave him alone. Leave him alone for a year to be happy, it says. That's the phrasing in the English Standard Version to be happy with his wife, whom he has taken. And that's all there is to it. That's just the one verse right there. And then we move on to talking about pledges and what you don't take in the way of a pledge. But it's a curious, curious thing that we have this whole big paragraph, verses one through four, about if a woman is divorced and then she gets remarried and her second husband dies or else he also divorces her and she's just unsuitable, it would seem. She is just not, (laughs) she is not uh, up to snuff, apparently. You have that whole business, which is sad and uncomfortable, tense, unpleasant. And then just the one verse about a man who is newly married. And maybe you appreciate all the more how precious it is that first year of marriage for the young man perhaps possibly, who should be allowed to be happy with his bride. Give him a year, right? Not a week, not a couple of days, not a month. Give him a year to be happy with his wife before you start pulling him away to civic duties. And in some sense, perhaps this is just me reading into the text. Perhaps I'm being a little bit too imaginative here, but I don't think so. Don't you appreciate the preciousness of this young man's happiness all the more when you consider it in contrast to what is obviously an unhappy woman, an unhappy series of husbands, perhaps if two in a row divorce the same woman, they weren't happy with her. When you consider the young man who is happy with his wife and what a beautiful thing that is. And how that is actually more important or it takes precedent over. We should prioritize it above sending the young man out with the army or putting him into some kind of a public office. We have a ranking of priorities there that is worth thinking on. It's worth considering. It's worth contemplating. But it's also interesting to me that the woman who gets divorced from 
her first husband, which is to say he divorces her. By the way, that is the biblical model. It's the husband who divorces his wife, not the other way around. He decides whether he is happy with her. And of course, that's completely out of step, completely out of calibration with our egalitarian modern thinking on divorce. And when we come to a instance of the Bible being out of step with what we do, what do we do? We either ignore the biblical passages that pertain or we recalibrate, we explain away the biblical passages. That's, of course, what God intended, right? That's what God wanted. That's why he put it in here is so that when we come to these passages that disagree with, contradict what it is that we're doing, we just keep on doing what we have been doing. We just take a poll and look at the consensus and look at the precedent in modern times. And we just keep on doing what it is that we have been doing or whatever the majority of people want to do, because that's somewhere in here probably, right? If the majority of your community or your nation decide they want to do something else besides what God commanded, then it's no longer a sin to ignore what God said to do some other thing. It would be a sin for you to do anything contrary to the popular will, right? Because the popular will, that's obviously what takes precedent. Of course, of course. Well, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I was being facetious. That was satire. I didn't mean that. That's not correct. It really is beside the point when it comes to our individual actions. You don't have to have a law on the books on a national level, at the state level, in order to abide by what it is that God is saying here. Now, when it comes to an enforcement mechanism, maybe we just say, it's your own conscience that's going to bother you once you read these things. If you are not doing them, if you're not abiding by them, if you're not contemplating and meditating on these commands of God, maybe it's just your conscience, that's going to be the enforcement mechanism. But really, there should be a reinforcement from the community. There should be an agreement in the church, at least, that this is appropriate for you to read the Word of God and to meditate on it and to consider and to grapple with what it is that it says and what God would have you to do, and you should do what God would have you to do and not do what God would not have you to do. Concerning divorce, laws concerning divorce here in Deuteronomy 24, we would do well to factor into our own laws. We would do well. There's nothing about these laws concerning divorce that, as I understand it, has been fulfilled or abolished in the sense that for this age, as we await the second coming of Christ, Christ already took care of this and it's off the books. It's been struck down. No, no. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And not one jot or tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled. Now, some would say, when Jesus says, it is finished on the cross, what he meant was all of the laws are no longer for today, except to love. But then if how you love is defined and instructed by what God has commanded, then are we actually either loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, or loving our neighbor as we love ourselves if we pass over laws concerning divorce. Now, maybe you 
I hope you have no intentions of getting a divorce ever. I hope you haven't been divorced. I hope you don't intend to get divorced. I hope you intend very much to not get divorced. But odds are high in our culture that you will encounter someone in your circle, somebody who's a family member or a friend who is divorced or is getting divorced or is contemplating getting divorced. And if they ask you for advice, if they want to know what you think, you should have biblical wisdom. You should have the mind of Christ when you speak to them. You should be able to tell them, well, this passage says this, and I think that's pertinent. I think that's relevant as to what God says is good and wise and true. You should apply that in your case. So what would you do? Right? What would you do if somebody, let's say a friend of yours, had divorced his wife and then she went out and got remarried and her second husband also divorced her and now she was single again, as it were, and he said, you know what, I got to talking with her and ran into her at the store or some social gathering and I'm thinking about asking her out. I'm thinking about picking back up where we left off and maybe even we should get remarried. Maybe we should get back together again. What kind of advice would you give to your friend if you've read this passage? I think the advice you should give to your friend is don't. Don't do it. What is it that God says here? Her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. Now that's a strong word. That is a very strong word that that would be an abomination is the same word that's used with regards to homosexuality. It's the same word that's used with regards to when a man wears women's clothing or when a woman wears men's clothing. And maybe not for no reason, maybe not for no reason, the same word is used because these all go in the same category, that category being not just things that are abominable to God, but why, right? Why are those kinds of things abominable? Because they are a rejection of fixed standards from God, God's intention. God's intention for marriage, God's intention before marriage for our humanity, for our sexuality, for our gender. If we say that that's fluid, you don't get credit for sometimes <laughs> being correct. And that doesn't nullify the fact that you're not committed to being correct. And are you actually correct if you could take it or leave it? If you're ambivalent, if you're indifferent, if you're the one who's always deciding when it's time to abide by what God has commanded or what he has settled on, what he has committed us to, if you're the one who plays arbiter and you're just kind of in and out, what's really abominable there is your indifference towards the intentions of God for gender, for sexuality, for your humanity, for your life, for your marriage. Now, it's interesting too, if you think about it, it's just in practical terms. And again, I know I'm getting into some speculation here that you have to take with a grain of salt, but it's at least permissible for me to speculate. And this is just my opinion and take it for what it's worth. A man who gets divorced typically has, in our context, a lot of 
resentment. There's a lot of bitterness that comes with getting divorced. A lot of that has to do with the way our laws are set up in this country that despite the egalitarian quality to what our expectations are and that we would say a woman can get divorced to her husband just as easily as a man can get divorced to his wife, but then it ends up being that the women in most cases, look it up statistically, women are most likely to be the ones who actually file for divorce, which is an inversion of the biblical model, which is that it would be the man who decides whether he's going to divorce his wife. The laws favor the woman. If there are are material possessions, unless there's some kind of a contract on the front end, a prenuptial agreement, they call it, unless there is an agreement on the front end, she can take him to court and take half of all of his assets. It doesn't matter whether she worked for any of it. If he inherited that wealth, it doesn't matter. If she would no sooner have inherited that before she married him compared with if she divorced him, it doesn't matter. She just gets half in many cases. Whatever he would get, she now gets half of. And if that means liquidating all of his material possessions to be able to convert them into cash at a loss in a hurry to be able to give her just a lump sum cash amount, it ends up being that women have the capacity to ruin their husbands if their husbands are men of means. And so there's a lot of bitterness, right? The way we have it set up, there's a lot of resentment that men typically have towards their wives in the case of a divorce or their ex-wives, which is funny because there is no such term in the Bible. There is no such thing as an ex-wife. It's just the woman who had been formerly the husband, former wife, which I think is more appropriate. That's an, that's an appropriate way to think of it in contrast to ex, as though ex-husband has a kind of current standing. No, ex-wife has a kind of standing. No, no, no. Former means you used to be somebody to each other. You don't have that kind of an understanding today in our context in many cases, unfortunately. And I don't think it's just for the sake of being concise. What we mean by ex-wife, ex-husband is a kind of present reality. Like you could go back, right? Like you could go back and that's not what God has in mind. He says that would be an abomination. And also he says she's been defiled. If she gets remarried, whether her second husband dies or else divorces her as well, this says she's been defiled. And Jesus says in the New Testament that a man who divorces his wife, except in the case of immorality, has caused her to commit adultery, which is to say in the eyes of God, that divorce means in some sense, she is still his wife or she's still tied to him. And if she gets married to somebody else, then it's kind of like adultery, but then it's not quite. It's not quite in the case of Deuteronomy 24, because we don't see some exposition of she shall be put to death. Her you know, second husband will be put to death. No, no, there is a delineation. So it's not quite the same thing as if they're currently married and she has relations with somebody who's not her husband. 
That's not quite the same thing. There's an importance to expectations. There's an importance to what is the current state of things versus what is cut off, what is brought to a conclusion. But if it would be said that his divorcing her for frivolous reasons, just because he doesn't like her, just because she burnt the supper or didn't clean the house sufficiently well, or he doesn't like her laugh, it gets on his nerves now, or she's got foot odor or whatever, right? Whatever it is, whatever the reason is, if he just divorces her, he is causing her to commit adultery if she goes out and gets remarried. And that is so foreign to our current conception of these sorts of things. It's so foreign. And I think that's unfortunate. But the man who is newly married, give him a year. Give him a year to be happy with his wife, which is to say happiness is an important priority, especially for young couples. You want them to be happy. It's okay for you to want them to be happy. It is good for you to protect their happiness, to honor it, to cherish it. Don't try to rain on their parade. Don't try to play up how difficult marriage is going to be. You don't need to do that to them. Don't do that to them. Just because you've encountered some rough stuff in your marriage down the road, that doesn't mean that you need to spoil their honeymoon period. No, give that to them. If they're happy, let them be happy, please, for the love of what is good and right. But then also, I don't want to spend all of our time talking about marriage. Let's talk about some of the economic instructions and commands here. For one thing, Verse seven, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. That's serious, right? All of this human trafficking business that we are seeing in the headlines, and oh, by the way, Fort Collins, Colorado, which is not terribly far from Greeley here, it's about a half hour's drive, I hear is one of the hotspots in the U.S., for human trafficking. Human trafficking being essentially this. It's man-stealing. It's kidnapping somebody. It's enslaving someone. And then typically in our day, selling access to them for sex. So essentially it's pressing them into sex slavery. Usually there are drugs involved or there's alcohol involved, but there is definitely a use of violence, and a threat of violence. And do you know what the punishment should be when we catch somebody who has kidnapped children and sold them into slavery, is treating them as slaves? Do you know what the penalty should be when we catch someone who abducts women and sells them into prostitution, forces them into prostitution, treating them as slaves? Do you know what the penalty should be for those people who have abducted children, who have stolen children, who have stolen women, who have stolen, I suppose, hypothetically, men as well, and enslaved them, the penalty should be death. The death penalty is appropriate. There aren't a lot of crimes or sins, if you will, in the Old Testament law that incur the death penalty in a civil sense, but Man-stealing is one of those crimes. And oh, by the way, there are implications for our justice system 
if we have people wrongfully imprisoned and they are treated as slaves and they are treated oppressively, there are implications, I would say, for mass incarceration. Not to say that it's a one-to-one, but just like we would say there's something terribly, terribly wrong when a man is put to death for a crime he didn't commit, he was falsely accused, and then his his innocent blood is spilled, is shed on trumped-up charges because somebody wanted to get him out of the way and they framed him, or those who were supposed to be doing the detective work and the investigation didn't have any witnesses, didn't have very good evidence, and they just wanted somebody to pin the crime on so that they could look competent, just like it's an injustice, it's an evil thing for an innocent man to be put to death for a crime that he didn't commit. It's an evil thing for a man to be arrested, imprisoned, sometimes for years or decades of his life on a false accusation. And we should take it very seriously that due process needs to run its course. There's a lot of wisdom to every charge being established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a lot of wisdom to that. We should take it more seriously than we do, but also we see here laws concerning leprous diseases, offering loans to your neighbor, not going into his house to collect his pledge. No, no, wait outside. It's okay for there to be boundaries here. In fact, there need to be boundaries here. You still need to show respect to your neighbor just because you've loaned them such and such. That doesn't mean you treat them rudely. It doesn't mean that you have a blank check to dishonor them. Also, interestingly, verses 14 and 15, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. There are huge implications for employers, particularly with inflation and tax rates being what they are. There are a lot of Americans who are wage slaves who are living paycheck to paycheck. They do not own, they rent. A large percentage of their income goes to paying rent on a house. So they have a landlord. They don't even own the place that they put their bed in and sleep in at night, which is not how it should be, honestly. That should be more the exception than the rule There are far too many Americans who rent and they have to rent because homes are so expensive, interest rates are so high, and their wages compared to the rate at which their own government taxes them and prints money to devalue their currency relative the supply of goods and services in the broader market. All of that together is important to God. It's not no big deal to God. It shouldn't be no big deal to us. It is our business. This is our affair. And we should spend more time talking with employers, corporations in particular, but small businesses are no exception, particularly when there are abusive practices. And there are abusive practices. There are abusive trends that are dehumanizing and oppressive, and they exploit the fact that A lot of these people working for this or that corporation, this or that company, can't afford to quit this job. They can't afford to get fired, and they're just going to knuckle down and take whatever is thrown at them because they need that paycheck 
or else they're going to be homeless. They need that paycheck or else they're not going to be able to eat this week. Their family is not going to be able to eat this week. They need that paycheck to buy their kids some new clothes before they go back to school in the fall. They need that paycheck to pay the utilities costs, which are going up and up. Now, don't oppress a hired worker. Don't oppress. What does that mean? That means it is possible to oppress an employee. It is possible for you to be oppressive and harsh and cruel and exploitative. And what is mentioned as one example is when you give him his wages. If you don't give him his wages in a timely manner, that's a form of oppression. And if you just keep him locked into this sweet spot for your interests as an employer, this sweet spot of dependence, just enough to keep him around, but not enough to really allow him to be able to tell you no when you talk to him in an ugly way or you tell him to do something that's unreasonable or you tell him he can't do something that would be very reasonable and very necessary, that matters to God. He says to not do that. And we know when we read this, we know that it's right, it's good for God to say, don't do this. Don't oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Don't take advantage of the fact that he needs this job. Don't do it. I see this all too often in oil and gas, by the way. Particularly in the current regulatory environment, particularly with regards to contractors. You see it quite a lot with regards to those who are brought in and they make up a sizable share of the workforce, but they are not employees of the company. And those who are employees of the company typically have different responsibilities, but they're treated as if they're part of the family. And those who are contractors typically are treated as outsiders And they can be spoken to more rudely, with less consideration. They can be denigrated and they can be criticized. And ultimately, the big idea is you bring in contractors so that you can cut them loose for whatever reason, whenever you want to, whenever you need to. They're expendables, essentially. And I am a contractor. I've been a contractor for a good portion of my oil and gas career to this point. I understand how this works. I think it's an ugly thing. I think it's abusive, actually. I think it's oppressive in its way that contractors are brought in. And so we say, well, they're good enough to do the work. But then if they perform at a very high level and if they start to make the company nervous or if they start to make a lower level employee, a company man, nervous, they can be related to in a very abrasive way to try and pin something on them to make them the scapegoats. And that's not how it should be. There's always this tension between contractors and the major corporations that make up oil and gas companies and the oil and gas industry in this country. There's always this awkward tension, generally speaking. Not that everybody's ugly and rude and unpleasant, but there's always this uncomfortable and I think oppressive tension wherein the contractor may do a really phenomenal job and... The company man will take the credit for it internally. And if he makes a mistake or if somebody else makes a mistake, but he could be given a share of the blame on paper, cutting him loose, firing him or terminating his contract, which is a lot easier to do than terminating an employment contract with an actual employee. 
terminating his contract makes it look like, oh, it was all that guy. And then the company insulates itself from liability. But then it's not just the company that should matter. You think, oh, we need these companies. Yeah, but you, <laughs> you need those contractors as well if there aren't adequate protections and we don't have a category for them being oppressed. And we do allow them to be kept in a state of neediness, living paycheck to paycheck. We find that sweet optimal spot where the company makes the most amount of money. Well, then we're in violation of verses 19 through 22 of Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Corporations, especially lower level managers, from my experience, from what I've seen, as a rule, have a tendency to look for every efficiency so that they can get every last drop of profit out of the employees and the contractors and the equipment and the processes and the departments. And God would have something to say against that, in part because what ends up Happening as a matter of course, when you slash people's hours and their wages and their benefits or cut them loose or you treat them oppressively to get every last little drop of profit out of it, you are keeping them in a state of dependence. You are putting them into a state of dependence that eventually is indistinguishable from slavery. And if they cry to Yahweh, Deuteronomy 24 says, Yahweh will hear them. If they cry to Yahweh, Yahweh will hear them, and he may regard what you're doing to them as sin. And you may be able to cook the books. You may be able to fast talk it with the manager two levels up if you got in a situation where you would need to explain yourself. When you're standing before your maker someday and explaining to your maker, explaining to God how you related to these individuals rudely, harshly, oppressively, you won't be able to pull the wool over his eyes. And again, I think more of us need to understand that this is in here, that God does care about the relationship of us to one another when it comes to the economy. You can't just whitewash unethical practices by saying it's just business. No, no. It's just business is not in here. It's not in Deuteronomy 24. In fact, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. It's just business. It's typically code, and we should understand it to be code when somebody says that kind of a thing. It's typically code for whatever I just said or did or whatever just happened is not strictly speaking ethical or righteous or honest, but it'll get the job done, which is to say when you engage in that kind of talk, those kinds of behaviors, those kinds of decisions and deals, are being made, however much money you're making, you need to be reminded of the question of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And how much more silly is it if you're just getting a smaller slice of the world, a very smaller slice that is bigger than it was before, bigger than the slice you had before. You're not even getting the whole world, the whole world in exchange for your soul, wouldn't be profitable to you. And you're settling on a tiny little slice, a little sliver? Ooh, take care. Take care. But we shouldn't affirm that. We shouldn't show partiality. 
We shouldn't defer to it and we shouldn't pretend that it's no big deal. But you know why we do so often? Because if we didn't, then we would see the full extent to which the oppressive tendencies in our country, in our society, are willing to go to maintain control, to maintain the status quo, particularly if those who enforce these mechanisms find themselves in a profitable position. But understand, right? Understand and know this. You can put it off. You can ignore. You can silence. You can punish. You can retaliate against those who would object. Ultimately, God has so ordered the universe that this will bring a reckoning. Not to say that everybody who overthrows the system and engages in revolution will be righteous in what they do, but they will, at a certain point, reach a breaking point. And we have people now who, thanks to abusive practices among the very rich, partiality and a two-tier justice system being administered for those who are well-connected versus those who are marginalized. And by marginalized here, I mean not, first and foremost, ethnic minorities, although certainly they are in the category of those who are on the margins if they don't have good connections. That's what it really boils down to, whether you're white, black, yellow, brown. If you are vulnerable, it's because you don't have good connections among the powerful who could speak up in your defense, and that's why you're exploited. It's not, first and foremost, because of the color of your skin. It's because unscrupulous men see an opportunity and they take it, and they don't expect to be called to account or actually face any negative, punitive consequences. It's a good old boys club. And if we say it's just business, well then, that's all there is to it. Don't you dare object. At a certain point, the chickens come home to roost. There is a reckoning unless there's repentance. And if there's repentance, there still is going to be a variation at all levels wherever there is the repentance of what Zacchaeus was told to do. As a tax collector, he was told, go and pay back to all you took too much from. Anybody you fleeced and you exploited because he was exploiting people, he was a tax collector, but he was able to take more than what was actually technically due and fair. And what were those being taxed going to say? What could they say? There was probably a Roman soldier standing right there to make sure that nothing happened to the money that the tax collector was collecting. Jesus told Zacchaeus, go and make it right and restore these people you have exploited, you have oppressed. And what did Zacchaeus do? He did it. First and foremost, the redistribution of wealth is not what is righteous. It's who should that money have rightly belonged to? Who did it originally rightly belong to? And if you know the answer is not you, go figure it out. If it's still in your possession, go restore those you have sinned against. And if you do that because Jesus told you to, and you trust Jesus, and you love Jesus, and you want to be like Jesus, and you want to please and honor Jesus, then that is what counts. But if you don't do it, then that probably indicates that you don't love Jesus. You don't trust Jesus. You don't care particularly what pleases Jesus. You don't want to be like Jesus. And if you don't, What's really concerning is not, first and foremost, that you didn't redistribute if you had defrauded somebody. What's first and foremost going to count against you is that lack of love for God. 
for what he declares to be good, what he declares to be just, what he declares to be true. That's what's going to get you. That's what you need to be on guard for. Switching gears, let's talk about some current events items. First up, Aran McIntyre over at The Blaze has a piece published July 25th, that is yesterday, Linguistic Technology, How the Left Captured Climate Change. He writes, a stifling heat wave has impacted large portions of the United States this summer, which can only mean one thing, endless stories from regime media about the apocalyptic threat of climate change. Leftists' nearly hegemonic control of the consensus manufacturing apparatus in America grants them the ability to construct the default narrative framework in which any discussion about current events takes place. Every news cycle is a new opportunity to capture power. No crisis goes to waste. The problem with climate change is not the idea that we should honor the land on which we live and preserve it. The Chamber of Commerce GOP approach of who cares about tomorrow, burn it all down if it gets in the way of GDP has always been ugly. As hunters, farmers, fishermen, and hikers, many conservatives have a natural affinity for nature, and this should be reflected in the approach of the Republican Party, but GOP voters are right to doubt the motives of the modern environmentalist movement. The phrase climate change is itself an obvious piece of newspeak. When I was growing up, environmentalists would talk about greenhouse gas emissions and the possible dangers of global warming, whether one believes that the current levels of industrial pollution were having a significant impact on the climate or not. At least there was a rational discussion to be had. Global warming predicted a specific chain of events that could be observed, and the assertion could be proven true or false through reason and evidence. But as dramatic predictions of peak oil Global famine and submerged cities failed to materialize. Environmentalists realized they needed to rebrand. Every time there was a cold snap or a blizzard, the public's faith in global warming was called into question, so a more durable term was chosen. Climate change is impossible to argue with because the climate is always changing. That is the nature of life on Earth. It is factually unassailable. Even if man had never existed, the planet's climate would shift dramatically over time. Global warming implied a consistent pattern with an identifiable result, so it could be proven false. But climate change is bulletproof. The right rarely thinks very much about the language it uses, stepping into whatever frame is set for it. But the left is not so foolish. Progressives carefully select the terminology they advance, intentionally forcing their opponents onto unfavorable narrative ground. Climate change is an amazing piece of rhetorical technology allowing the left to take something that is undeniably true in the strictest sense and charge it with infinite political energy by taking ownership of the phrase and proactively defining its public use, the left managed to construct a political monopoly around a piece of reality. Now, let's just pause right there. Let's pause. Great stuff so far. Well put, Aron McIntyre. He's right about the word games and the manipulative use of language and the monopoly that the left has on corporate news media and social media. He's right about that. Try to say anything at all that is not parroting the newspeak about climate change on social media and see what happens. You will be fact-checked. You will have a disclaimer put on your post. You will have people reporting back to you. 
that they were scrolling through their feed. They saw your post come up and they were asked, are you sure you still want to follow this person? Or this post has been hidden from view. Before you look at it, you have to intentionally click to say show post after we give you a bit of re-education before you even consider what this person you know or this person you follow has to say. It's very manipulative. It's very oppressive. This is a violation of sound ethical principles. This is actually a way of expressing on the left and among those who sponsor, facilitate, are active in promoting the causes of the left. It's a way of all of the above folks who make excuses for this or they facilitate it, that they don't see you as somebody that they have to persuade or engage in conversation with. They see you as an unreasonable animal to be herded. They see you like Temple Grandin saw the animals who were panicked at the slaughterhouse, having compassion on them and redesigning the slaughterhouse so as to decrease stress on the animals, but not not so that the animals would actually be, oh, I don't know, set free. No, they're still going to the slaughter. They're still being led to the slaughter. We just want them to be calmer about it and not so stressed out, not so upset. It affects the taste of the meat, the quality of the meat. It affects cost. It stresses out the people working at the slaughterhouse for the animals to be so stressed out. Let's redesign the whole slaughterhouse so that these animals remain calm right up until the moment we end their lives and start turning their bodies into meat to sell at the supermarket. The folks who are engineering consensus in these manipulative ways by using Phrases like climate change, where they used to use global warming. That's how they see you and me. And that's what you need to understand. He's right. Iran McIntyre is right. This is a brilliant piece of utilitarianism. It's a blank check. It's the equivalent of rhetorical cold fusion. It's just going to be unlimited energy to fund whatever initiative the experts who could be bought What do you think grants are? What do you think funding from a bureaucracy, from a department of the government, what do you think that is? That's buying consensus by buying the scientists who produce the reports that you want on the presuppositions that you have already predetermined so that then you can give those reports to the corporate news media who will then spin them and repeat them over and over again or reference them at least. You don't have to actually read the full report, but reference those reports. Have the people who are attractive and well-dressed on the expensive-looking sets with large groups of technical experts helping them to look very credible, to be believable like so many Judas goats. Have them reference these reports to the voting public. And if that fails and the voting public still objects, just turn off the comment section, turn off visibility for the dislikes on the videos, shadow ban the people who have the most gumption, the most credibility to present a counter narrative, to cross-examine. And if that doesn't work, when they show up to protest, when they show up, you can get them upset 
come up with an excuse to arrest them, haul them off, charge them with disorderly conduct. If they weren't breaking any laws, then as soon as they don't obey the police officer who is going to remove them, now they're breaking the law. Now they are obstructing a peace officer, and now you can charge them with that. And you can drop the charges once you've engineered the public opinion about them sufficiently. And if that doesn't work, then let them holler, let them complain, let them object, let them cry out as much as they will and do whatever you're going to do anyways. Because it's not as though you have to live among these people. It's not as though you're the one who actually goes to the supermarket if you're in the upper crust who buys the consensus. It seems to me increasingly as though this climate change business, especially where the WEF folks, the World Economic Forum folks, are the ones pushing it and driving it, especially where Al Gore is the one who really brought this into the mainstream consciousness of not just the U.S. government, but governments around the world, engineering consensus. It seems to me as though these very wealthy, very powerful people want it to appear as though there was already a movement and they were persuaded. They were won over because, of course, they're persuadable. They were won over to the arguments. They saw the moral imperative. They joined. Not so fast. Not so fast. What if it turned out that some of these very wealthy people actually launched these things in the first place? They commission the bandwagon. They hire the people to build it so that they can jump on it once it's gotten up to speed a little bit. And then they really give it credibility because they have wealth and power and they can ramrod through things that have come out of the consensus factory. And oh, by the way, the corporate news media is a consensus factory. It's mass producing consensus. That's what it's doing. Social media is more like a re-education camp as the left conceives of it, less like a public square. We think of it as the public square. They think of it and regard it as and treat it as a re-education camp. It's a consensus factory. Pravda in the Soviet Union was a consensus factory. In 1984, Winston, working for the Ministry of Truth, he works for the consensus factory portion of his government, Big Brother. In Brave New World, consensus is established by just keeping a large portion of the population too stupid to notice and too drugged up to care and too entertained and too promiscuous to be able to think about anything else. What is that? It's a engine builder. It's a consensus factory. Who built it? Who runs it? Who owns it? And at a certain point when it's all artificial and inauthentic and manufactured and it's all utilitarian, it's all the ends justify the means, at a certain point, you do have to start looking at, well, wait a second. (laughs) Isn't this kind of oppressive? If this was all set up for people to become debt slaves, to get an education in skills but not character, and certainly not the kind of character that would have them engaging in critical thinking, asking hard questions, participating as equals in their own government. If they were sent off to college, the smartest ones to be, in some sense, hitched to the plow, not just tithing to the government in the way of taxes, but also tithing to the financial system 
in the way of student loan payments, at a certain point, you should ask whether we are living in a flagrant violation that aspires to be global in its scope, a flagrant violation of the commands of God in Deuteronomy 24. Climate change is just the ticket. That's the catalyst for a global firmware update, so to speak, an overhaul of the whole system that is not new and it didn't just come out of nowhere. I think you could, if you study history, you could verify what I'm about to say is correct. When you go back in history and you look at the Industrial Revolution and you look at the industrialists who made so much money with so little land, they were able to make a great deal of wealth in a short span of time. And then they wanted political power. And so they sponsored and they promulgated and they embraced wholly Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. They embraced the theories of Sigmund Freud. They embraced the advice and counsel of Edward Bernays. They embraced the community organizing principles of Saul Alinsky. They embraced the eugenics gospel of the likes of Margaret Sanger. Those industrialists wanted it all. They wanted political power and they needed a new state religion. Climate change, global warming, LGBTQ+, etc. This is the new state religion that they settled on and they keep pushing the envelope because there's still more profit to squeeze from society and from the world. If you only really thought that that was how the world worked in the modern era because of COVID and that woke you up, that jarred you into shock and disbelief in how things really operated, how things really worked prior to 2020, you need to understand your recognition, your realization of the game that's being played is not when the game started. This goes back at least a century to compulsory schooling in the U.S., imported from Prussia. This goes back to the ideals of the French Revolution, the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Karl Marx. In some sense, this is the divine right of kings, but Darwinian for the industrialists. In the place of God, they would have processes that reward the fittest. And how do we know who is the fittest? They're the most handsome. They're the wealthiest. They're the most powerful. But in a Darwinian scheme, they have a might-makes-right approach to deciding. And so they don't actually get consensus through persuasion. They get consensus through compulsion, through creating dependency. The welfare state is also, oh, by the way, a consensus factory. It's part of it. It's little different than the way that slave owners in the Deep South used to separate out the husbands from the wives and the children on their plantations. Very little different. Those slave owners in the South, in too many cases, engaged in selective breeding of their slaves, and they mixed in Christian excuses to justify it, but there was no biblical support for what they were doing. And unfortunately, post-Civil War, the Reconstructionists in the North, the Union folks, 
they came down into the South to plunder, to pay back, but also to exploit the South. And they came down with a very similar attitude, except the way slavery worked in the North was through wages, high rents, low wages, creating a condition of dependence, particularly for sojourners, for immigrants. And then when the immigrants started to get organized together in their little pockets, outrolled compulsory schooling to take their children, teach them English, reading, writing, arithmetic in theory, but more importantly, to teach them how to be good citizens, according to who? According to the progressives, which is to say the consensus factory wants a progressive consensus. And this is why conservatives, when they complain to progressive education systems, are tuned out. And then we get the blame, right? We get the blame as conservatives for saying, all right, I'm out of here. I'm taking my kids down the road to the Christian school, to the private school. I'm taking my kids home and I'm going to homeschool them. Oh, that's why things are the way they are. No, no. This compulsory schooling system from the outset was designed to take children away from their parents. How then do you expect this system to really, truly be responsive to the parents of the children who are supposed to be indoctrinated in what the progressives think is the proper citizenship mindset. They're taught skills and then to keep them off balance, to keep them from getting any bright ideas about religion, morality, ethics, individuality, self-determination, conservatism, a lot of sexuality is thrown at them. They're subjected to sex and violence, and that's okay as long as it also furthers the progressive agenda. And oh, by the way, for those of you who think when I'm talking about corporate news media and the public schools and social media, if you think that Twitter is an exception, it's not enough an exception. It's still baked deep into the code, and there are still obviously lots of people who work at the lower levels who get to make the determination to just ignore my appeal because I'm still off of Twitter for the most ridiculous and absurd of reasons because, go figure, the consensus factory underground still wants to ensure the right thoughts, the right opinions, the progressive agenda is what wins out. Whatever Elon Musk says, whatever he thinks, yeah, so what? Who cares? He won't see. If you think Fox News is some exception, Harris Rigby would have you think otherwise, have you think better. Fox stops matching employee donations to the satanic temple after outrage. Yeah, they are just a Judas goat. That is all Fox News is. They're a Judas goat. They're there to help manufacture the consensus by almost inoculating the public against what is said to be conservatism, but it's not conservatism. It's a weakened strain of pseudo-conservatism. It's a weakened strain. That's why they're always interrupting people before they can really actually even say what it is that they mean to say. If you want to know what conservatism is, read The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot by Russell Kirk. And if you're like, oh, but I don't like to read, you know whose fault that is that you don't like to read? The public schools, which made you stupid. That was the idea, to dumb you down, because it's stupid to not want to read. 
You say, well, I don't have the time. Ah, but why is it that you don't have the time? Whose fault is it that you don't have the time? Or you don't know how to manage your time or you don't know how to prioritize your time. For one, we could ask questions of the public school system. Again, why is it that these kids are not taught how to manage their time? Well, because everything is structured for them in a top-down, centralized way. The teachers and the school administrators are going to decide how these children manage their time so that they get used to it. Because when they work for a factory someday or when they go off to join the military, we need them to be obedient. That was Frederick the Great's big idea. That was his father's idea in Prussia. That's why the public schools are the way that they are in the U.S., That's part of how they get you. Fox News matching employee donations to the satanic temple, all the while running these weak sauce stories as though they're opposed to Satanism on the rise. No, they're not. You know what they care about? You know what they're opposed to? They're opposed to losing wealth and power. And when I say losing wealth and power, I mean the progressive consensus. The new clerisy must be maintained, and Fox News is going to help that to happen. That's what they mean by conservatism. That's not conservative thought. That's a farce. That's a bait and switch. That's false advertising. I mean, they stopped matching employee donations, and so you might say, well, yeah, but see, they responded. They listened to the outrage. People were all upset. No, 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 no. People knowing that they were matching employee donations to the Satanic Temple or to various other radical left organizations— People knowing that was going to threaten, was threatening Fox News's credibility at a time when their credibility is already in the tank. After what they did to Tucker Carlson, you can't tell me that they believe in free speech, that they believe in cross-examination, that they believe in rigorous public debate. Fox News is not conservatism. No, no. It's more like a Judas goat. That's what Fox News is. It's a consensus factory. It's another department. You know, in an oil and gas production facility, when you produce and you compress, what you will get with compression is heat. And so what you'll do is you'll compress. And if you want to keep from having too much heat on your compressed gas, for instance, for example, you will put it through a cooler. If you have a sudden pressure drop, however, you will have a temperature drop. A sudden pressure drop will cause piping and equipment to freeze up and to frost up like you wouldn't believe. And if you don't heat up in the places where you've got the major pressure drops, at least enough to keep it from freezing shut, you will lose all flow. So you can have cooling happening on one part of the facility, heating happening on another part of the facility, compression happening on one part of the facility, but a pressure drop on another part of the facility, a sudden pressure drop to cause liquids to fall out, for instance, compression to keep this stuff flowing and moving, or to get it up to pressure before you drop the pressure, raise it up and drop it down, raise it up and drop it down like an accordion. So you wring every last drop of natural gas liquids, for instance, out of the gas. You get dry gas. You also get the byproducts that you can separate out and sell for specialty manufacturing. That's what Fox News and CNN and MSNBC are like. You can say, oh, but they're separate, independent corporations, each reporting on the news. And I say, no, no, they're separate 
parts of a larger processing facility. This is like Pravda scaled up and much more sophisticated. This is like what would happen if Pravda had been more like a oil refinery or a natural gas processing plant, except what's being processed isn't oil and gas, it's consensus. That's why these companies make so much money. And that's why they so often are on the same page, even if they are directly contradicting each other. The compromise that they're all willing to come to at the end of the day, they were willing to come to before they got their narratives lined up. It's engineered consent. That's what it is. Now, just briefly, one last story, because it is important, it is relevant to this whole business of manufactured consent. Amanda Prestigiacomo over at the Daily Wire has a piece up. It's egregious. School board members battle Governor Newsom's personal attacks, threats of fines, legal actions. Prestigiacomo writes, following pressure from Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat from California, including the threat of a $1.5 million fine and legal repercussions, a Southern California school district has reversed course to adopt a state-approved curriculum the school board initially rejected. Three newly elected board members from the Temecula Valley Unified School District, Joseph Kamrowski, Jen Wiersma, and Danny Gonzalez, have been repeatedly personally targeted by Newsom since they voted to delay the deployment. of a curriculum for elementary students backed by the governor. The governor has likened the trio to demagogues who whitewash history, censor books, and perpetuate prejudice, bragged about a civil rights investigation launched by the state's attorney general back in June into why the board rejected the curriculum and vowed to send the district a bill for $1.6 million along with $1.5 million fine for initially refusing the textbooks. Quote, the governor's statements are outrageous and it has been a surreal thing for me to live through this with the amount of threats and intimidation and the bullying that's gone on, whether it's monetarily through a fine or a lawsuit or the name calling, it's egregious, Wiersma told the Daily Wire in a phone interview. There's no other way around it, end quote. Now, I'm going to play for you briefly a clip of Gavin Newsom talking about this. It's one minute and 13 seconds long. Take a listen and then I have some closing remarks. Everybody, it's uh, Gavin Newsom, father of four with two young elementary school kids. And I want to talk to the parents of the Temecula School District. Uh, we've been paying close attention, as I know you have, particularly with school uh, coming up on August 14th. Uh, you're worried, I'm worried, we're all worried uh, about access uh, to information, access to uh, the latest social studies books that are being made available quite literally to hundreds of thousands of kids all throughout the state of California, but are being denied to the kids in the Temecula district. Uh, that social studies book is being censored by the local school board. Um, I know that's created a lot of anxiety. The last thing we need is more anxiety and more stacking stress. So I want you to know that we're moving forward. The state is moving forward in purchasing and procuring those social studies books. Your kids have the freedom to learn and you have the freedom to access those books, the same books that hundreds of thousands of other kids throughout the state are accessing. So rest assured, we'll be sending those books down in very short order. And let's do our best, all of us, to soften the edges uh, of these debates 
and to make sure that we provide accurate information and the freedom for our kids to learn. That, after all, is the California way. Okay, so there you go. There is Gavin Newsom telling you about the California way, so-called. Now, I'll be honest. I'm going to have to not say all that I would like to say because if I don't restrain myself, I'm going to engage in a profanity-laced tirade, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. It's not necessary, and it's important to not. But let me just point out, this is why we homeschool, and this is why we homeschool. Buy my book. This is the trouble with putting too much stock in showing up to a school board meeting because the school board could just decide to ignore you. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily matter how many parents sign a petition, organize, document, even read aloud from books that they object to. The folks who are putting those books into your children's hands, putting them into the curriculum, putting them into the school libraries, putting them into the public library, unless you replace those people, and I mean from the top down, I mean all the way from abolishing the Department of Education because it doesn't need to be a federal department. It should be at most on a state-by-state basis, whether you have any kind of government oversight of education at all, which again, that's dubious in case it's not obvious, which I know it isn't because the consensus factory doesn't ever go there, doesn't doesn't ever expose you to that question. And you just aren't going to get it from them that the government doesn't need to be involved in education. That's a weird thing for a government to take control over and to dominate and to monopolize for a free people. But this is why we homeschool. Because if the school board understands that the governor of the state could just harass them publicly for all to see until they give him what he wants, until they give the political party on the left what they want, until they give the consensus factory what it wants, then what's the point? They don't work for you as they see it. They work for whoever's going to carry the biggest stick to whack them with if they rock the boat, if they take certain books off the reading list, if they reject certain textbooks because the curriculum is objectionable and propagandistic and socialistic and deviant and corrosive to the formation of good character, hostile to the American tradition, hostile to Christianity. If you replace the school board with people from your community who run as conservatives, and this is happening right now in Greeley, Colorado, hopefully it goes better than it's going in California, but I don't think that it will. If you put your stock in getting the school board to listen to you, even if it means you swap out the school board members, the school board chairman, if you deal with it there, but the Department of Education is going to come down, the governor of your state is going to come down, the State Department of Education, but the federal government as well, the Federal Department of Education, if both alike, all of the above are going to come crashing down on you as a school board and make your lives miserable and assassinate your character, well then, what's happening to your kid in the meantime? If they were literally raping your child in these schools, if they were literally oppressing your child, abusing your child, harming your child, which, oh, by the way, if they're talking your kids into self-harm, essentially, with 
gender reassignment surgery, puberty blockers, preferred pronouns, homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, normalization of pedophilia. Would you just wait? Or is this proof of how successful the public education system, compulsory schooling in the U.S. has been at making you into unquestioning slaves? And if that's what it is, how can you not pull your kids out? If you can't threaten and be ready to follow through on the threat that you're going to pull your kids out and you're going to homeschool them, this is only going to go one way. It's only going to get worse. But this is why we homeschool. This is why we homeschool, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't actually get decided by Gavin Newsom or, in the case of Colorado, the state Board of Education, the State Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education. It doesn't get decided by the governor of Colorado or the president of the United States or the school board in District 6, how my kids get educated, what they're taught with regards to morals and character and who God is and who man is. Why are we here and where are we going and where do we come from? At the end of the day, the buck stops here and more husbands and fathers have to step into the gap and say, that's enough. The buck stops here and so I'm pulling my kids out. I'm not waiting for you guys to listen. And if there's a chance to abolish the Department of Education, say for instance, with a presidential candidate who's running as a Republican, who's already said he wants to do that, he aims to do that, well then I say, let's do that because it's needful. It's well past time. A hundred years It's time to call it because this is part of how they take us captive in our minds, in our thinking, in our emotions, in our hearts, in our souls even. Not in my house, not my kids. Gavin Newsom wants to say he's got four kids. He's a father of four. We don't need more anxiety. You know what produces anxiety? When the governor of the state harasses the local school board because the local school board is delaying in accepting the curriculum he supports. That gives me anxiety when the president of the United States says, those aren't your kids, those are everybody's kids. That gives me anxiety. It's time to cry out to God and to do what is right. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.